Passion Week is the title of this message. When you look up Passion Week in the dictionary, you, you find this definition, the week between Palm Sunday and Passion Sunday. And this is today, isn't Palm Sunday. For many centuries, followers of Jesus has considered with awe and silence and renewed commitment his final days. You can't, we can't, I can't put into words what Christ went through that final week. It, 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 we just can't do it. But, but we try to go back there and, of course, it, it, and it all points to, to Calvary and it all points to his love for us. We meditate on the hours leading up to the cross. And we, we see this instrument of, of torture as a precious object. Many today have either gold or silver, a cross hanging around your neck. We don't see it as they saw it in those days or as the Romans saw it as an instrument of extreme torture more than our minds can comprehend. But we see that or I do today, as, as a symbol of God's love for us. During his last week, Jesus taught. He argued. He cried out. He answered some questions and parried others and challenged both enemies and friends with the truth. And he stood be, before his accusers silent, which is wild to us, because most of us in America today are so outspoken that we, if we're challenged at all, we come right back. We don't hold it in. He allowed himself to be crucified. He died. Those who loved him as well as they knew how buried his body and mourned. But not for long, because we know what happened. The new week ushered in a new world, Resurrection Day, which is, which is next Sunday. So Matthew gives us these final scenes of the life of Christ. Once more, the Jews had gathered in Jerusalem to remember the Exodus and celebrate the Passover. That's what brought hundreds of thousands of them into the city. Once more, hope, spring eternal. Messiah had come was one of the rumors that was flipping through the crowd. And then like an arrow shot into the heart of hope came Jesus' betrayal, trial, and death. We have all had our hopes crushed in a lot of different ways. But this, this is beyond anything that, that our minds can wrap around. The Jews had waited thousands of years for the Messiah, and now the rumor was he was here, and he makes a scene. He gets the spotlight. They take him and kill him and put him in a tomb, crushed. How can... We who know the outcome in advance even come close to understanding what his followers went through that week. I just wanted to pick out two events as we do a little history lesson here this morning in a sense. Two events that, that happened during this Passion Week leading up to his crucifixion. The first event was a triumphal entry. All four Gospels mention this event, which at first glance seems the one departure from Jesus' aversion to claim. Before then, he, he would heal people and tell them not to tell anybody, but the crowd spread clothes and branches across the road to show their adoration. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they cried. 
And usually Jesus recoiled from such fanaticism, but this time he let them yell. And to the indignant Pharisees he explained, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Was the prophet from Galilee now being vindicated in Jerusalem? Look how the whole world has gone after him, exclaimed the Pharisees in alarm. It's something that we would like to hear today in America and in our world, isn't it? Look, the whole world has gone after him. At that moment, with several hundred thousands of pilgrims assembling in Jerusalem, it looked for all the world as if the king had arrived in force to claim his rightful throne. I've always pondered this. Here are these thousands of people that are saying Hosanna and welcoming Christ, and you see that expression on their face. And then in the next week, <laughs> the tides turned. He was arrested. He was killed and, like I said, put in a tomb. And I don't know if the same people that were on the Via Dolorosa, not the Via Dolorosa, that's the way of the cross, but as he was coming into Jerusalem, I wonder if those same people were in that crowd when Pilate brings out Barabbas, the outlaw, and says, which one of these guys you want us to crucify? And they, they picked Christ. It, 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 it escapes my mind. But, but it brings me into our lives on how many times in your life has the Holy Spirit got you in a situation to be Jesus? Whether it's a touch, whether it's a word, whether it's an action. But at that moment, you're silent. It, it almost seems maybe the same of how many times in our lives that we betray Christ in our everyday existence. You, you try to make that correlation in a sense. But when you read the Gospels, you start to see the vast undercurrents that help explain the shift, the shift in popularity, the shift in hatred almost. On Palm Sunday, a group from Bethany surrounded Christ still exultant over the miracle of Lazarus. They had seen that with their own eyes, him bring somebody back from the dead. No doubt pilgrims from Galilee who knew him well comprised another large portion of the crowd. Matthew points out that the further support came from the blind, the lame, and the children. Beyond that consistency, however, lurked danger. Religious authorities resented Jesus with a hatred that I don't know if we can grasp, <laughs> maybe. I, I mentioned things I probably shouldn't. I, I think it's some of the hatred that some people have for politicians. I'm not going to name names. But you talk to them, and, and it, just, it sees in their eyes. They just they detest them. Well, Jesus had, had, had gained some support of the people, and the Pharisees wanted to be uh, number one as far as in the religious world, and they wanted him dead, actually. And what they had at their disposal was the Roman legions brought in to keep peace during Passover. So if they could prove to them that there was a troublemaker that was going to cause trouble in their city, they would have them at their disposal. And can you imagine the Roman soldiers, their thoughts? As they checked out this disturbance that was at the edge of Jerusalem coming into the city, they had perhaps had seen processions in Rome itself where they did it grand and glorious. The conquering general sits in a chariot of gold 
with stallions training, straining at the reins and wheel spikes flashing in the sunlight. And behind him, officers, behind him was officers with the banners of vanquished armies, and at the rear of them was all the, the people that, uh, slaves and prisoners that they had conquered. They brought them in and changed to prove the might of Rome, actually. In Jesus' triumphal entry, the adoring crowd makes up the ragtag possession of the lame, the blind, the children, the peasants from Galilee and Bethany. And when the Romans look for the center of attention, they spy a forlorn man, not on a chariot or a stallion, but on a small donkey, a coat for a saddle, and he's weeping profusely. I don't know what makes you cry. But I've often said that the Holy Spirit gives you gifts, I guess, and at times when you feel His presence most. And I, I know this sounds crazy sometimes, but to me it's, He makes me weep. And it's not always weeps of grief and sadness for you for our lives, for the tragedies that we have to endure, the disease and the death that comes along with being a body of Christ. Scott was in Jerusalem years ago, and he took a picture through a window in a church, looking across the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem, and he mentioned this. Jesus knew ahead of time what was going to happen. And he knew he was going to suffer, and he knew he was going to do it for people who would reject him. And he wept, and that's why he was weeping. Like I said, I don't know how well you deal with rejection. I'm, I'm not real good with it. And just a few do that, but can you imagine in the life of Christ at this time, I have come to give you abundant life in all its fullness. You don't want it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll not forget that picture. And we, we were there in Israel last year. We, we were at that place. Yet there was a whiff of triumph on Palm Sunday, but not the kind of triumph that might impress Rome and not the kind that impressed crowds in Jerusalem. What manner of king is this? The triumphal entry represents all those clear moments when man has expressed its strongest wishes for God to intervene into human life. But his but has mistaken its own purposes for God's. Lord, we want you to come into our life. Here's a list of the things we want you to do for us. That, and that's not, that's not the way that it works. It was in God's plan the way that it happened. This opening scene in Jesus' final week serves as a reminder of all the ways in which Jesus' entry in 
to history was misunderstood, even by those who experienced it and were expecting him. The triumphal entry teaches us to acknowledge Jesus for who he really is. He was God with skin on. And he came to change our lives, to make people who look different brothers in Christ and melt our hearts together. Now we fast forward to him coming into the city to Thursday evening to the setting of the Last Supper, Jerusalem. Matthew 26, 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. On that evening, Jesus and his disciples arrived in Jerusalem. The Passover meal was supposed to be eaten in Jerusalem after sunset and before midnight. And they took their places on the reclining couches around the table. During such an important meal as the, Pharise- as the Passover, everyone would recline at the table, symbolizing the freedom that the people had from being brought out of Egypt. It was a relaxing time. And the Jewish tradition, the Passover meal is called the Seder, which in Hebrew means order. Man, I was, when I was putting this stuff together, I was looking at this. I, I wish we could do something like this. Maybe not as a, as a family. Maybe we could. But the fact is, if all families would remember Christ and remember God in a sense when they had this tradition. We don't do so much tradition anymore. Some of it's good and some of it's not so good. But I am sure that if you are a, a, a Jewish person and you've been doing this since you were a child, that these things have imprinted themselves in your mind and your heart. The entire extended family comes together. They go through the meal and retell the story in first person as they have been one of the slaves freed from Pharaoh's bondage. When you put yourself into that place, it makes a difference. I was in the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and when you go in on the first floor, they give you a, a, a Holocaust victim, and that's you. And you go up to the fourth floor, and when you get off that floor, many of you may have been there before, you're walking out of a boxcar into hell. And that's, that's forgive my language, but that's, that's pretty. So as you go down, you, you somewhat experience what those people experienced. And that is the whole thrust behind the Seder meal. Everything on the table has a significance. On the Seder plate, you got a hard-boiled egg, symbol of the suffering and oppression in Egypt. Everything else in boiling water becomes soft or disintegrate. But an egg becomes harder. The more it is boiled, the harder it becomes. An egg also symbolizes new life. Also on that Seder plate is roasted shank bone of lamb. Reminds them that they had, there had to be blood sacrificed to save their lives. Bitter herbs, which is horseradish, reminds them that they were servants to slavery. Greens, parsley, celery, symbol of some coming of spring, which brings hope. Salt water reminds them of the tears they cried in Egypt. Harasset, nut, apple, cinnamon, wine mixture, which has the appearance of straw. 
in remembrance of the mortar used to build the pleasure cities for Pharaoh, it is symbolic of the hope of freedom that enables their ancestors to withstand the bitterness of slavery. And then matzah, the unleavened bread that reminds them of the haste in which they left Egypt. And this meal is organized around drinking four cups of wine, symbolizing the four-part promise of redemption found in Exodus 6, 6 and 7. I will bring you out. I will rescue you from bondage. I will redeem you, and I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. This was the traditional program for the meal. It would come with the blessing of the festival and would followed by drinking the first cup of wine. Next, the food would be brought out. The youngest son would ask why that night was distinguished from others. And they've heard this since birth, and they've heard it over and over and over, and they still do it. it it's to remind them. It, it's why we do communion. It's to remind us. The father would answer with the story of the Exodus and would point to each item on the table as he explained its symbolic significance. This would be followed by praise to God for past and future redemption taken from the first part of the Hallel. Hallel means praise in Hebrew, Psalm 113 and 14. Then the second cup of wine would be drunk, and the second the bread would be blessed and broken and distributed and then eaten with bitter herbs and a fruit paste dish. This would be followed by eating the meal, the Passover meal, included roasted lamb that had been sacrificed at the temple. So when the Jewish father would take the lamb to the temple and they would slit its throat and sprinkle the blood on the altar, they would take that lamb back and that's what they would eat for this Passover meal. The father would bless a third cup of wine, which would be followed by the singing of the second part of the Hallel from Psalm 115 through 18. And a fourth cup of wine would conclude the meal. This is the meal that Jesus had with his disciples. And then there were many surprises in store for the disciples that evening as they moved through the Passover meal ritual laden with symbolism. And I am sure, as we think about this, that when Jesus read the story of the Exodus, that in the disciples' mind, they maybe substituted Rome for Egypt. What, what better plan would it be for God to step in now? And just like the children of Israel were led out of Egypt, that the children of Israel in Jerusalem in that day could be led out of the, under the boot heel of Rome. I, I am sure that was on their mind, and it, it excited them. Especially when Jesus said, I confer on you a kingdom. And then he says, I have overcome the world. Then he did something that interrupted the progress of the meal. The scripture says Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. John begins with a flourish and then adds this incongruous completion. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. In the garb of a slave, he then bent over and washed the grime of Jerusalem from the disciples' feet. What a strange way for the guest of honor to eat, to how to act during the final meal with his friends. What incomprehensible behavior from a ruler who would momentarily announce, I confer on you a kingdom. In those days, 
Foot washing was considered so degrading that a master could not require it of a Jewish slave. Peter blanched at the provocation. The scene of the foot washing stands out to author M. Scott Peck as one of the most significant events of Jesus' life, and I quote, Until that moment, the whole point of things had been for someone to get on top. And once he had gotten on top, to stay on top, or else attempt to get farther up. But here this man, already on top, who was rabbi, teacher, master, suddenly got down on the bottom and began to wash the feet of his followers. In that one act, Jesus symbolically overturned the whole social order. Hardly comprehending what was happening, even his own disciples were almost horrified by his behavior. <laughs> Jesus was showing us that service rose above being on top. And hopefully down through the years and the centuries and the millennium that his followers would grasp that. The fulfillment in life comes out of pure service. As we look at that night together, this clip, maybe you kind of get a grip of maybe what it was like. Let's watch. Kabilule wa okulu tenau kishmi ilukomi hiv. Kabilu, steu tenademi. The breath During that last meal with his disciples, Jesus, the Lamb of God, offered his body and blood for sharing, always to be taken with a solemn reflection on his sacrifice and his future return. He offered it in spite of the unworthiness of his followers, one who had betrayed him, another who would deny him, and all who would abandon him. He offered it because they needed a Savior, and he was that Savior. I hope all of us understand that this morning, that we need a Savior. And I hope as we, we say that, that we really grasp it, that, that we have that relationship with Christ that we should have. And as we know that after Thursday night during Passion Week that more events 
happened in the life of Christ and his death on, on Friday. It's like Tony Campolo's message. It's Friday. Sunday's coming. Resurrection Day. I don't think we as his followers can skip this week. I think sometimes we like to think that, that we come on. And I remember when I went to church as a little kid that they'd put palm branches and little kids would come through waving those palm branches. Because of who we are and how sometimes pain and blood and suffering, we want to eradicate it from our lives. We like to skip from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Day. It's because we don't have to put ourselves in that place or maybe even think about going through some of the things that, that Jesus went through. So as we go from this place today, uh, let's remember Jesus' great love for us. And let's not forget Passion Week. Let's, let's not forget that. And today and tomorrow and the rest of this week, when the Holy Spirit comes to you, prods you, inspires you, grips your heart to be Christ, do it. Just do it. And as he convicts us for things in our life that we need to take care of and change, just do it. This should humble us as we, we, we think about this, and may it inspire us to love others and serve others. Because we live in a world and a culture that it's so easy to get in a rut. You get up, you go to work, you come home. You watch TV, you get up, you come home. And a lot of you with children are on the run 24-7 with ball games and school activities. Don't, don't leave Christ out of that is, is my prayer this morning. And if you don't, cry, don't know Jesus in a personal way, I would really <laughs> ask you to consider that today, to go into this Passion Week with Jesus where, where he needs to be in your life. Father, I can't say much else. To even I try to bring this to a close. So I think about what you've done for us and what you continue to do. And some of the gaps that you have bridged in people's lives and in relationships, and you brought us together to be your family. And this is not a perfect family. There are none. There are times when we upset each other and get mad and don't speak and hold grudges and on and on. I know that pains you, but that's family life. And I say this almost every week, Lord, help us to be good children, children that you're proud of, children that have that relationship with you that we should have. So right now, fathers, we close this, that if there's sin that needs to be confessed, that we might do that now. If there is somebody here that really wants to know you and don't know how, that we are sure open to showing them how as they come up and pray with them. I don't know if anybody needs prayed with this morning. Keep us mindful, Lord, of this Passion Week. And as the anticipation grows, that we might go in 
to the last of this week with great hope because we know it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. We love you, God. Thank you for these people. I love these people. Just ask that you bless them. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.